From the Faculty of Graduate Studies at York University, this is Grad Life. I'm Will Sloan. Today, two more stories of innovative student work. A little later, we'll be talking about a social networking initiative that helps connect Canada's Indigenous communities. But first, mental health issues and mood disorders like depression and anxiety are rising worldwide. So are urban populations. Being outdoors is said to make people happier, and urban and regional studies PhD student Nada Hassan hopes to better understand how urban green spaces affect people with mental health issues. She is one of this year's recipients of the prestigious Vanier Scholarship. Her research will rely on insights gleaned directly from people with mood disorders as they navigate public spaces. How does this work? Let's find out. I think we all sort of know that being outside makes people happier. Uh, I don't have any science to back that up, but it feels that way. But why is that? What is it about being outside that makes people happier? That's a great question. It's also a pretty big question because I do think, as you said, intuitively, we know that being outside and in nature and in urban green spaces specifically tends to make us happier or feel better is good for our mental health and well-being. That's what researchers are trying to understand. And I think there's two sort of parts to that question that are important to unpack a little bit. And so the first is that not every urban green space is necessarily good or makes us happier. So there's this tendency to romanticize nature and we tend to presume that all green spaces are good when that may not in fact be the case. The second part to that is also that not all people experience green space or any space really in the same way. How so? When we think of who we are and our intersecting identities, so for example, race, gender, sexual orientation, or ability, that influences how we interact with our environment. So my experience with all my intersecting identities impacts how I navigate space just like yours does as well. And An example of that is actually with racialized people. So for instance, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, we tend to make choices about how we use public space. And urban green space is one of those spaces that I'm interested in based on, you know, experiences of racial harassment, for example. So while studies have tried to understand sort of physiological responses to urban green space, I think there's been a lack of research focused on understanding lived realities and why people experience space a certain way. So that's what I'm really interested in exploring further, and especially for people living with mood disorders. Could you describe a little bit about what your research is? And also, you have a technique called photo voice. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, so I'm still sort of in the comprehensive stage of my doctoral work, but in terms of starting to understand why people experience space a certain way and the lived realities and the complexity of this, photo voice is sort of a technique that lends itself well to this sort of question because it's a qualitative visual method. It's participatory and the aim is for it to allow people to capture their own realities and experiences. So it's really a tool that allows groups of people to share their experiences by taking photographs. And then that's often followed up with interviews or focus groups that allow participants to sort of expand on their photographs or what they were experiencing and share their own narratives in their own words. How will you conduct your research? Do do you have a sort of a timeline or a methodology in place yet? 
I'm still working on my comps, but I think it would be really interesting to sort of adapt this technique. And I'm exploring the idea of adapting this photo voice technique so that people can walk through green spaces. So I'm essentially thinking about scheduling group walks through specific sites, urban green spaces in Toronto. And it would be interesting to have participants take geotagged photos where they could also record comments, for instance, on the site, their thoughts, how they're feeling and why, and then follow this up with interviews to understand their experiences of green space and the impact on their mental health. So it's still very early stages, but it's an idea that I'm toying with right now. What do you hope to find? With this sort of technique and with this sort of research, it really is open-ended and there are a lot of considerations that I'm thinking about. What I'd ideally like to start to unpack a little bit more is how can we understand people's experiences, so specifically people who have been often marginalized or overlooked or experienced different forms of discrimination so that we can bring their experiences up front and center when thinking about health promotion and urban planning initiatives. So in order to truly create inclusive, health-promoting urban green spaces from a health equity lens, I'm hoping to sort of get a more in-depth, richer account of people's experiences and how they perceive, navigate urban green spaces. Out of curiosity, do you have any favorite green spaces in Toronto? I have a lot of favorite green spaces. And I think um, part of the question, part of this research question that I'm interested in and the question I often get asked is, what makes something favorite or good. And aside from green space having its own intrinsic value, there are actually a lot of different factors that make up a good green space. And so I started to actually explore a lot of green spaces in Toronto after um, a chronic health diagnosis. I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer and depression as well concurrently. And so I started to think about why I was being drawn to certain green spaces and not others, and how I started to navigate those spaces, which is actually what led me down this line of thought. And when we think about a good green space, so some of the factors are quantity of green space, access, accessibility, as well as quality of green space. And so when you ask about a favorite green space, I think my favorite green spaces are those that actually respond to a community need or the needs of sort of people who surround a neighborhood green space. Mm -hmm. So an example of that is sort of the Tandoor oven at RV Burgess Park in Thorncliffe Park. Have you heard of that? A good example of um, sort of community-led initiative. I've not been to Thorncliffe Park, but on your advice, I will check it out. <laughs> and I mean, there's so many examples of that. I think where sports facilities are in demand, then parks that respond to that need, along with providing space for people to make it their own, is also pretty great. Mm. And Toronto's ravine system is also pretty cool. Is Toronto in general doing well with green space? And also, do you think there are other cities out there that are good to emulate? I think that Toronto, and I, and I think when we think about green space, we sort of need to shift the narrative a little bit. And I know that Parks Forestry and Recreation has been working on their parkland strategy earlier this year. 
And we do a fairly good job in Toronto and in other cities of measuring the amount of green space, which is something I touched on earlier. And that's because there's sort of a concrete way to measure green space, but starting to be a recognition that we need to understand and have a way to better assess the quality of green spaces. In that sense, you know, that nuance is much harder to capture, which is what my research is trying to focus on and what I'm trying to do with answering this question. So if we think about our green spaces in Toronto, it's what are the quality of the green spaces we have? But a question is, do they meet community needs? And are they equitably developed and maintained? And what are the actual experiences of people in those spaces? I think another part here is just acknowledging that there are different factors that play. So at the individual neighborhood and systemic levels, and they kind of interact. And so that influences how different people experience urban green spaces and how it impacts their mental health. And so a part of my research process here to loop back to that question that you had was there's a lot of ethical issues in being reflective when thinking about urban green space. And for me, I'm also trying to acknowledge that there's a history to the land that we're on and that there is traditional indigenous land that we're on. So questioning my role and continuously rethinking my approach to this is part of that research process. Do you know how that might manifest itself in your research? Uh, How would one go about, how would you go about incorporating that, I guess, colonial awareness into your research? And sorry if it's too early to answer that question. No, I think it's a great question. I don't think it's ever too early to ask that question. And I think for me personally, it starts with situating myself. I'm an immigrant and a settler and very grateful to be here, but also continuously learning, unlearning and questioning what my role is, I think is a starting point. And then starting to unpack a little bit of what I've learned, what is a false history, but then bringing a critical lens to thinking about connections to land. So I think starting with myself is one of the first things I can do. And then starting to also reach out to people who have done this work and learning from others and also learning where I can step or not step. A social networking initiative that has emerged from York is helping connect Canadian Indigenous communities. The Indigenous Friends Association builds and supports technology by, with, and for Indigenous peoples. Created through the Centre for Aboriginal Student Services, it began life in 2015 as a mobile app that creates networks between Indigenous youth and raises awareness of resources and counselling in local communities. Earlier this month, The association received $350,000 in funding from the Government of Canada's Canada Service Corps program to expand their initiatives. The president of the association, Alejandro Mayoro Banos, is a PhD candidate in communications and cultures at the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Professional Studies. Let's hear from him. What is the Indigenous Friends Association, for those who don't know it? This team and this group uh, was a space, is based in York University and was created based on the Indigenous Friends app. That it was a project that was born in York University as a student initiative. Uh, we work with elders, knowledge keepers, faculty members 
to create this app for uh, supporting ind indigenous students on campus. So this association was created to support that app. And when was the app created? The app was created, the, start, the starting process was 2015, mm -hmm. and the first release was mid-2016. And had any app like this existed beforehand? Oh, there uh, around indigenous apps, uh, there has been a, a long journey with uh, languages, mm -hmm. to teach languages. But what this app is new about is about supporting indigenous students to create connections, because we found that mainstream social media, they are not supporting uh, all the values and all the different traditional knowledge that a lot of the students were looking for. Interesting. So could you talk a little bit about what was the process of creating the app? And oh, yes. I, I know, it, as you said, it started here at York, but yeah. what was that evolution? Oh, okay, yeah, I, I love to talk about that. So I was in my master's mm -hmm. at that point, and I was in the interdisciplinary studies program at York. So one thing that I love about that is that I had the opportunity to take like classes and courses in different departments. So one part that it was a challenge, I was taking history classes and I was taking tech in computer science classes. So I needed to start creating my project for the masters, right? So at the beginning, I was like looking to, okay, how I can connect this. So the first idea was like, you know, do just gonna write something, an MRP, and that's gonna be the end of the process. But what happened is I was looking to do some community-based uh, research. So I, I went to the Indigenous Center, it's CAS, the Center for Aboriginal Student Services. Uh, I was part of it already, and I was talking to an elder, and I asked the elder, could you introduce me to a community because I need to do, start doing this, this research, and, and I'm trying to figure it out what I'm gonna be doing. Mm -hmm. At that point, it was just like, you know, something related to technology mm -hmm. and indigeneity. So the elder was like, why are you looking outside of York? You have a community here. So let's start looking to something here. And then the elder said, what about an app? And I was like, okay, that is gonna be an interesting process. Um, because at that moment, I didn't know anything about the creation of apps. Of course, like we are used to use apps, but it's a completely different process to create an app. So it was an interesting process to learn about how to create that in the, in the process of also discovering a lot of different intersections between the, the digital and indigeneity. So um, that process started in 2015. What we discovered in the process is there was missing parts in the design. What we try to include is that traditional knowledge in the design. So it's not that we create an, an app in a normal way, like using a software engineering design process. We use a traditional knowledge, we use a ceremony. So how the process was, like, we follow the same steps to raise a TP. Mm -hmm. It was the same steps to create the mobile application. So including all that traditional knowledge throughout the process was a key element to include all that indigeneity into the, into the design and to create a safer space for indigenous students. Interesting. And obviously, indigenous peoples, it's not just one community. It's a, it's a big and multifaceted thing. Yes. Like, how do you go about approaching that? Oh, that's uh, that's a very very interesting question. So one part that uh, actually, and, and we faced that in, in the middle of the process, when we were having sharing circles, and especially at York, we have people from different places. So we have Ojibwes, we have Mohawks, we have Seneca people. So how we are gonna, you know, 
include all the different points of view into the app. So the elder and, uh, came with an idea, and I think that was very important. So what we decided is to follow the teachings of the land where the university is. So, so in, in this case, we follow the Anishinaabe, the Ojibwe, traditional knowledge. So we follow that. And of course, the students within the application, they can include their points of view and their own knowledge. But in the design, because it was designed at York, we are following the protocols of the Anishinaabe Ojibwe. Has it grown beyond the app? Oh, like, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So, well, first of all, this started just at York University. It was going to be just a project within York. Mm-hmm. But of course, a lot of the universities were very interested to, to also apply that within their institution. So right now, we are uh, for this coming fall, we are going to start at Queen's University in Kingston and St. Paul in Ottawa. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that dynamic will be. So the idea is how we can create uh, these spaces between institutions and how we can interact uh, with uh, different users from different uh, places. And now, what, what happened also in the development part is we were trying to hire indigenous developers. So let's try to include indigenous students in the process. But what we did re- realize is that there were very few students in, in tech, uh, indigenous students in tech. So it was like, okay, so what is going on? So what we discover and what, uh, we, and what we are doing now is I think, and especially in a university setting, it's a perfect space to start challenging how we are teaching technology in an indigenous setting. So this project now with the association, uh, we apply for funding to start creating uh, different models and different educational models across Canada to teach indigenous students how they can create technology in their own ways and including traditional knowledge. So right now, actually, we are deploying right now at this moment in Sacmoc First Nation, and we are like uh, creating different apps with the students. But we, and this is a very interesting part, before going to type something in the computer, they need to go back to the land and they need to start learning again about their community and connecting to their community teachings, and then they start coding. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting way of approaching the teaching of technology. And what we are seeing is uh, indigenous students are get, uh, are getting really engaged on the process. What sort of feedback have you got? We have all kind of feedback. Well, first of all, uh, we have very positive feedback around uh, creating safer spaces. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, that is indigenous based that uh, actually follow indigenous protocols has been uh, really helpful. But one feedback that we received, and it was a real challenge the first year, um, it was about the IP, the intellectual property part. So uh, especially into the tech, in the tech side and in the tech uh, industry, it, there, are, there are a lot of concerns around IP. Who owns the IP? Mm-hmm. So how actually the people are, and especially elders or knowledge keepers are gonna be sharing things into this space, who is gonna have the IP of that? So, um, so there were a lot of questions and feedback, okay, how we are gonna go around the IP. So we actually work with different people at York, uh, especially Professor Rosemary Cumbie, that is an expert in IP uh, from the, in, in the Department of Communications. So what we decided is we included a label, a traditional knowledge label and traditional knowledge licenses into the space so how the all the knowledges that are shared in in the space they can be protected with ip 
So the idea is indigenous peoples are sharing all that knowledge, but all that knowledge is protected. Mm -hmm. So uh, if someone wants to share that into any other social media, actually they will be doing an infringement in IP. <laughs> so it's, well, it's an interesting way of approaching so people can be uh, feeling confident that their content is not going to be shared in other spaces. Mm -hmm. So that was an interesting feedback. Second feedback, and it has been a push in all this time, is what about all the people that are not in post-secondary education? What are about the people that are living in reserves, in communities? How we can go to those spaces? So there has been a lot of talks about it because the necessities, the needs of, uh, of that population is, uh, of course, is totally different from the necessities of students, right? So what we are trying to do is how we can create another app, because that could be another TP, is how we can create uh, other spaces for other locations, and especially for people that are, that are not having access to post-secondary education. Have you heard any stories from people who have used the app and found it helpful? Yes, I can share it. One of the most meaningful, definitely, and, and it's impacting me right now when I, when I see her. Uh, Mackenzie Toulouse. Mackenzie Toulouse is a student in health and society here at York. She is doing her undergrad. And one thing that she has said all this time is having the app and being part of the project, being able to put their feedback and especially she was always like completely disconnected from technology she was like always saying that she didn't know anything about technology and all these things but um, having the opportunity to be in the in the app being part of the project has uh, empowered her in many different ways and now something that she said is is the first time that I, I feel that I, I can give something to my community that I can provide because the struggle that I had just to come to York and thrive throughout my post-secondary education is actually something that we are putting into the app. So my experience is helping to constructing the space and is helping to create more resources for new students. So the transformation that she has had in all this time is from being just a user, a user into the app, now she's becoming a leader in their community, and now she's leading the process in, in SACMOC, so it's like, that can be one of the most meaningful examples. Finally, I'm sure people are interested in your own story. Uh, you came from here from Mexico, what well, brought you to New York? I, I came here in 2014 and from Mexico City. Um, I'm indigenous myself from the mystic communities. And um, one part that was a challenge for me is my undergrad is in computer science. So always anything re related to indigeneity, especially at that time, was or you are indigenous or you work in computer science. So those two things cannot be together. That's that seems strange to me. Yeah, no, now yeah. now it's a trend, and now it's like everyone is aware that indigeneity can be in many different spaces, and mm -hmm. it's something that is happening, right? But at that time. Um, one of the of the main streams uh, was like indigenous peoples need to continue being traditional and they cannot have access to the digital mm -hmm. because digital is you know this modern society capitalist society and it, and many of the resources of, of the digital are are extracted from a lot of indigenous communities around the world so this idea of that the the indigenous was like the counterpart of 
of the digital. So it was always how I can connect that. So in Mexico, I was working with a lot of indigenous communities, but in projects that were not related at all with the digital. But what happened, and it was just a natural process, every time that we were in the community, youth were always in the phones, they were always in computers, and they were very interested in how I can incorporate my identity into these spaces. So that's how this idea of, okay, how we can start connecting. And now, of course, in, the, in 2019, we have a lot of examples across the world how that can be connected in many different ways. But at that time, and I don't know, like five years ago, six years ago, it was really difficult to find connections. Mm-hmm. Where can people learn more about the Indigenous Friends Association? Oh, oh, oh please access the, our website, indigenousfriends.org. And um, also, if you have any specific questions, just send an email to info at indigenousfriends.org. Oh, great. Yeah, thank you. For more information on the Faculty of Graduate Studies, go to gradstudies.yorku.ca. Thanks for listening.